Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by podcaster and film historian, Karina Longworth. Karina is the host of You Must Remember This, a podcast that explores the secret and forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. The show, which began back in 2014, has just returned for a new season called Erotic 80s, a 12-episode series that focuses on genres like the erotic thriller, body horror, neo-noir, and the sex comedy, all of which flourished throughout the 80s and 90s, but have seemed to disappear in 2022. As Karina talks about in this conversation, the central dilemma is this. We've never lived in an age where there is more public discourse about the nuances of human sexuality, including sexual abuse and harassment. And yet, sex itself has all but vanished from mainstream American movies, most of which seem entirely disinterested in presenting adults that have any kind of sexual appetite desires, or fantasies. But in the 80s, there were plenty of movies dealing with just this. American Gigolo, Nine and a Half Weeks, Risky Business, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Flashdance, Fatal Attraction. We talk about some of those movies in this episode, and there's really no one I'd rather unpack this period of filmmaking with 
than Karina Longworth. In a recent profile, The Atlantic called her Old Hollywood's Most Vital Historian. And while this is probably a label she would make fun of, I think after the last two weeks, in which we've talked about everything at the Oscars, but the actual movies themselves, it was time for a different conversation. A talk with someone like Karina, who could remind us why we fell in love with movies in the first place. That love, of course, is not without its complications. And so I want to warn everyone before we get going that some of the material covered in this episode is provocative and sexually explicit. If you've seen these movies, you know that comes with the territory. But even if you haven't, I think you'll find this back and forth really interesting. As Karina often says, she hopes that her work will help people understand the history of Hollywood, how inextricable it is from American history, and what we may learn from each of them, both the movies themselves and the conditions that produce them. And so, without further ado, here is Karina Longworth. Karina Longworth, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. This new series on, you must remember this, is called Erotic 80s. It's going to explore the brief period in the 1970s, ending around 1999, when Hollywood made movies, you write, about the sexual lives, mores, and fantasies of adults with degrees of candor, realism, and imagination not seen before or since. Before we jump into those films... Is it true that you came up with this series around the erotic 80s during the pandemic? Well, I think I'd been interested in the 80s and this sort of thing that was going on for a long time. But I actually like watched or rewatched a lot of those movies then. Yeah, I did the same thing, not for a podcast, <laughs> uh-huh. I guess for today. I was wondering, what do you think it says about us? <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I have two of my best friends are a married couple and they went through like an Adrian Lyne phase. I mean, they probably don't want this like aired out on Maine, but like because of their regular watching of Adrian Lyne movies, they got pregnant. That's something that, you know, happened in the pandemic of like, well, I don't know how long we're going to be in the house. Let's watch something that feels sort of sexy and exciting. I have no kids from the pandemic. (laughs) Me neither. Okay. This series, can you walk us through the central premise of it? I mean, the general premise is just that there's very little sex in Hollywood movies in 2022. And I wanted to kind of try to figure out why that is or what has changed by looking at this last period where sex was such a vital part of popular culture. And it's a period that I kind of inherently know well because it's when I was a child and a teen. And so I was learning about sex through popular culture. And so that's part of it. And then, you know, just as kind of a structuring element, it's more or less it's one episode per year with the idea being at the very end. I'll talk about Eyes Wide Shut in 1999. And so it's tracing the 20 years leading up to that. You write here in 2022, there is a more public conversation about the nuances of human sexuality and sexual abuse and harassment than at any time in modern history. And yet, sex has all but disappeared from mainstream American movies. Did you have a sense going into the series why you think that was or is? I think there's a lot of things you could say about it. I mean, you know, ultimately, I don't think Hollywood does things 
for moral reasons or for personal reasons as much as they do things for commercial reasons. And I also think that when things are not broke, they don't fix them. I don't like to pretend like I have a crystal ball and like I want to caveat everything by saying that the film industry is incredibly in flux right now. Nobody knows what's going to happen with the theatrical experience. Nobody knows what the future of movies is. But for the past few years, it has felt, barring that, barring the pandemic, barring all those changes, it has felt like things weren't broken. Marvel movies, DC movies, big spectacle movies that don't care about the personal lives of their characters are making enough money. So there isn't really any need to try anything else. I also think that there is sort of an issue of of a divided consciousness between understanding that a large segment of the audience is, you know, for lack of a better term, woke and wants to have a progressive conversation about things like sexuality. And there's still maybe slightly less, but probably a little bit less than 50 percent of the audience doesn't want to have that conversation at all. You mentioned that Hollywood doesn't do things for moral reasons. They do them for commercial reasons. I think to understand how this wave of movies came to be, we have to go back to that period you talk about in episode one between 1972 and 1973, where X-rated hits like Deep Throat and Last Tango in Paris were released. In early 1973, the New York Times called the brief movement a kind of porno chic. Here's a passage from that article. Recent Deep Throat audiences are said to have included people like Johnny Carson, Mike Nichols, and Jack Nicholson. Some off-duty policemen went and became the objects of search in the theater by fellow officers. Members of the in-crowd from Elaine's announced one night that they were going for the second time. Truman Capote said, you see it at your own peril. For those less familiar, can you explain the historical context of this moment? First with the release of Deep Throat and then Last Tango. So Deep Throat was the first mainstream theatrically released feature pornographic film to make as much money as a Hollywood release. In fact, it made more money than a lot of Hollywood releases in 1972. I can't remember exactly where it fell on the box office top 10 for that year, but it was five or six. It was number five. And this was the year where The Godfather was number one. It outgrossed many movies that people have definitely seen and heard of. Can I add for context? Mm -hmm. That list, one through four, includes The Poseidon Adventure, The Godfather, What's Up Doc, and Deliverance. Yeah. And then Deep Throat, right. which, which seems inconceivable now. And so until very recently before Deep Throat, you know, there was sort of no publicly acceptable way for normal people to see pornography. Unless you call Playboy magazine pornography, which, of course, some people did. But hardcore pornography, where you're seeing actual people really having sex, was not something that was available for public consumption in the same way that it has been over the past 20 or 30 years. Now, obviously, there was no home video. Sometimes you could go to you know, a, a party and somebody would have illicitly acquired an 8mm or 16mm film. But generally, this was something that you would see in the setting of a theater that was specifically for sex films, a brothel a red light district, something like that. Now Deep Throat was being shown in regular movie theaters, and there was cultural pressure for people who would never have admitted to consume pornography to go see it so they could be part of a cultural conversation. Here's a clip from the 1972 hit Deep Throat, starring Linda Lovelace and Harry Reams. <laughs> Open your mouth. <laughs> Open your mouth wider. Wider. Ah, 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 ah. 
Well, there it is, you little bugger. There it is. What? <laughs> your clitoris, it's deep down in the bottom of your throat. <laughs> now, now, Miss Lovelace. Listen, having a clitoris deep down in the bottom of your throat is better than having no clitoris at all. It's easy for you to say. Coming back, in that same New York Times piece I quoted from earlier, they talk about how deep throat was a subject of conversation at dinner parties, bars, cafes. How did the success of that film set the stage for a movie like Last Tango in Paris? in 1973. Well, it's important to note that Lost Tango in Paris didn't make nearly as much money as Deep Throat. <laughs> but for an art house film, it did quite well. And its marketing and release strategy were in some ways modeled after Deep Throat, because one of the reasons why Deep Throat made so much money is that it was decided that they could charge an elevated ticket price, a premium ticket price. So I, I think the normal ticket price was either $2.50 or $3, and they charged $5. And, you know, promoted for adults only, X-rated, but premium ticket prices. And promoted on this idea of, like, you can't see this at home. You have to go to the movie theater. This is not on television. When Last Tango in Paris was released in the U.S. in New York in the spring of 1973, they did the same thing. They charged the same elevated ticket price. It was the same thing of, for mature audiences, you can't see this on television. Obviously, they're very different films. I mean, Deep Thread is incompetently made. It does have this sort of one avant-garde montage, but non-professional performers, very bad sound quality, bad picture quality, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas Last Tango in Paris is an aesthetic masterpiece. But then, you know, they sort of both offer this thing, this idea of either real or some kind of very close to being real simulation of sex that you couldn't see anywhere else. They both are also products of a male-centered sexual revolution. Looking back 50 years at those two films, how have you wrestled with what they represent? I mean, most movies from that point were, you know, coming from a male point of view. So that's not something new for me to wrestle with. But I think that what's interesting is to sort of see the turn that that happens culturally, because both were part of the porno chic, like that whole idea what was being sold was this idea of liberation. And it was being sold to women of like, if you want to be a liberated chick, like you have to participate in this culture environment. And then it was revealed years later in both cases that both of the female stars of these movies equated their experience of filming these movies to rape or sexual assault. And so that changes the notion of liberation completely. Why do you think it took so long for those revelations to be made? So Linda Lovelace, who's the star of Deep Throat, she was in that film because she was married to a guy named Chuck Trainer, who was her manager and got her into pornography after having gotten her into other types of sex work. After she became a worldwide sensation, she felt empowered to break up with Chuck Trainer, But she basically found that there wasn't really anything on the horizon for her after Deep Throat. All people wanted was more Deep Throat. So she had been hiding this secret, which was that she had never wanted to do any of this stuff, and that Trainer had basically coerced her into doing it through rape and through holding her at gunpoint and other threats of violence. He actually beat her while they were shooting Deep Throat, and you can see bruises on her legs in the film. So when she kind of reached the end of her rope and was financially destitute, she agreed to write a book in which she revealed all of these things. And so that book was called Ordeal, and it was published in 1980. So this is about eight years after the Deep Throat phenomenon. And one of the things that made it 
a more comfortable climate for her to make those revelations then was the rise of the anti-porn, anti-sex work feminist movement, which was mainstream. It was mainstream feminism. Gloria Steinem was a big leader of it. And so they kind of embraced Linda and used her as their poster girl of, you know, even the girl in Deep Throat says that pornography is rape. And, you know, she later said that she felt exploited by those feminists because at the end of the day, she was still broke. She still, like, was living, like, at a poverty level. In the case of Maria Schneider, I think it's a slightly different story. She certainly was also held up as an icon of sexual liberation, and she participated in marketing herself in that way for a long time. But she also had mental problems, drug problems. And I think she kind of had to go through the ringer before she was able to examine exactly what happened and put it into that language. Both of these films, which were sold to people as markers of sexual liberation, ultimately proved to be something entirely different. The one thing that I keep going back to, which which you said earlier, I think people like to believe that Hollywood changes with changing social attitudes, but it really changes with money. And it seems like come the early 80s, Hollywood still wanted to continue to capitalize on sex, but needed to figure out a way to make it more palatable. Mm -hmm. How did they begin to do that in, say, 1980 with Paul Schrader's American Gigolo? I'm not sure that American Gigolo is like the best example of the studio system, like, you know, doing something that was calculated. It was more like they let Paul Schrader make this, you know, very strange art film. And everybody was lucky that it turned out to be a cultural phenomenon. He snuck one past them. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, he was really tapping into something that he was kind of on the forefront of in terms of fashion and music and this feeling that, you know, he had experienced in Los Angeles and I'm sure people did in in New York and San Francisco and some major cities as well, but wasn't really in the mainstream consciousness that much, which was this both attraction and anxiety felt by straight men by the influence of gay culture in their lives. This is disco, right? I mean, disco is a gay, primarily non-white music form that infiltrates the absolute most mainstream and puts straight men in proximity with the other in a really powerful way and kind of forces them to question whether it's so other. And so American Gigolo is on the forefront of putting those ideas in a Hollywood movie. Although it was mostly packaged as Richard Gere, new heartthrob. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's what makes it sellable is that the movie, when it acknowledges gay culture at all, it does it in a way that is, in the literal sense, homophobic. And it promotes him as being a straight icon. But the way the movie was received was that a lot of people couldn't buy it at all. They couldn't buy this idea that a male prostitute would be a hero. It's interesting. I can't remember which critic it was, but it was one of the major newspaper critics who was basically trying to make sense of, like, why anybody would make a movie with the hero as a male prostitute. And he compares it to gangster films. This guy, he can totally understand, like, why you would empathize with a gangster a murderer, but he can't understand why anybody would empathize with a sex worker. And so, I mean, that is where the culture was at. It was easier for men to identify with a mobster than an androgynous gigolo. And Richard Gere is not even that androgynous in the film. He just cares about the way he looks. Right. He's not like messing with gender in any way that would be familiar to the way we talk about it today. I mean, the thing that I think was really radical about that film is the the notion of self-sacrifice that it's not about him conquering these women. It's about him accepting their money to give them pleasure and to give them what they want. 
And that's something that felt really radical. And I think that a lot of sort of male identification with male characters in movies has had something to do with feeling more powerful than you are. Well, why don't we take a look at a scene from this film we're talking about? This is American Gigolo from 1980, starring Richard Gere and Lauren Hutton. Why did you come on to me? Like I said, I made a mistake. I heard you speaking French. Often in these big hotels, you, you run into women from foreign countries who may need a translator or a guide. And they hire you? Yes. How much would you have charged me? As what, a translator or a guide? No. Just one fuck. Coming back, you said in your episode on American Gigolo, there's no question that there was something in the air in the late 70s and early 80s. A level of anxiety among straight men about gay men and the queering of popular culture and traditionally sexually segregated spaces like nightclubs through disco. Some men dealt with their anxiety head on, albeit with gun in hand, while others repressed it or let it fester into hate. For Paul Schrader, who grew up as a Calvinist, it seemed like his sexual repression or confusion manifested into this movie. Well, he's spoken about how if he'd made the film now, it would be, quote unquote, more gay. <laughs> you laugh at that. Well, I just, I don't know. I, that feels like a sort of funny way of putting things, you know, quantifying the amount of gayness. I don't even know how you do that. Yeah. I mean, like, is it now at a four and you want to bump it up to an eight? You know, again, like, I think what's really exciting about this movie is the sexual fluidity and that it really feels like you can't peg what that character is in terms of gay, straight or bisexual that he could be anything at any moment. You know, you mentioned that Schrader intended American Gigolo to say something about male sexuality, but you've said it feels like the media was not ready to have that conversation. What was the conversation it was ready to have? It was ready to basically talk about how women were horny now and that it was fine for women to be horny. Was and that the title? <laughs> I don't remember saying the word horny on magazine covers, but it just stopped just short of that. From basically from 1980 through about 1985, Richard Gere is on countless magazine and newspaper covers, either shirtless or, you know, dressed sort of like James Dean. And he was really promoted as a hunk in a way that now there are hunks that women can objectify and they don't have to worry about trying to marry them. You know, they can just think of them as being a one night stand. So the way I researched this season is basically that I bought dozens of vintage magazines and newspapers and publications. And I find that really useful because you can sort of lay them out and see how a certain idea or star or movie or whatever it is, is being both sold and received by the public. I do like the image of you in your office encircled by old Playboys. <laughs> well, I did buy um, all 12 issues of Playboy from 1980, and I placed the order on eBay while I was in Serbia, and my eBay account got shut down because mm -hmm. it seems suspicious. But uh, yeah, so what you see when you are reading magazines of all kinds, from Playboy to People to Film Comment to Playgirl, are these different strains that keep popping up in all of these elements of culture. And certainly in the early 80s, there was this fear in magazines like Playboy of these protests against pornography that were basically saying that Playboy is equivalent to Deep Throat and both things are equivalent to, you know, the movies of Brian De Palma. All of it is promoting violence against women. 
And so there's that strain in culture. And then, you know, weirdly, just sort of right after that strain becomes very prominent and mainstream, there becomes this other thing, which is, you know, women like sex. Like women want to objectify men. Everything's changed. We don't have to worry about the old rules. And so it just seems to me like I'm not saying it's like a coordinated op, but it does feel like one thing happens and then the other thing happens to counterbalance it. You have this great passage. You said, at a moment when a dichotomy had been set up between purveyors of sexual imagery for a male gaze and the women who wanted to put them out of business, is it a coincidence that the mainstream media seemingly launched a campaign to normalize the idea of a female sexual gaze with widespread lust for Richard Gere heralded as a sign that women were capable of casual sex interest and, in a sense, wanted their own version of pornography? Yeah. It's sort of unnerving. (laughs) What I was seeing, you know, just seeing how these things are laid out in the most mainstream of media was that it was kind of a distraction. Think about sex. Think about Richard Gere. Think about Tom Selleck. Think about these hunks. Don't think about the fact that, like, since the 60s, women's wages haven't increased that much. Don't think about the fact that you're still fighting for childcare, that there's still a glass ceiling that you can't penetrate. Do you think it worked? I mean— Certainly to some extent. And it was definitely part of, you know, this vibe, for lack of a better word, of Reagan America. You know, I mean, the emphasis became you can have like a little crush on Richard Gere. That's something that, you know, is sort of safe, but actually, you know, looking for real equality, allowing women to live on the same level as men. We can't allow that. What does Reagan America mean in the case of this series? You know, just an overall turn towards conservatism, an overall turn towards corporatization, making protest feel sort of more dangerous and taboo than it had been, you know, even in the 70s. I think a a unified sort of cultural pressure to fall in line in the same way that there was a cultural pressure in the 50s after World War II. Obviously, you know, Morning in America, again, like that whole idea is about reverting to an imagined past that probably was never real, but it's an imagined past of a nuclear family. The dad goes to work. The kids are taken care of by the woman. That being the thing that the government and the mainstream is trying to sell, it butts up against this idea of sexuality in movies in really interesting ways. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. 
And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800 3334 Kia for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. In one specific case where I think this Reagan America is affecting the movies is around 1983 and the MTV aesthetic. That includes Adrian Lyne's Flashdance, a movie like Risky Business with Tom Cruise. For those unfamiliar, what is the MTV aesthetic and, and what does it mean? So there's actually a really interesting academic article that I reference in the episode that I've written about that, which you haven't heard yet. I think it's the fifth episode of the season. It talks about how this thing of the MTV aesthetic, which was referenced in Many, many, many film reviews beginning in 1983 with Flashdance, but going all the way really through the end of the 90s, really to the point where MTV stops being culturally relevant. This idea of the MTV aesthetic is just a total canard. It's like completely ahistorical because the things that are being referenced are things like montage, 
the use of pop music, all of these things had been in movies before. And if anything, that specific aesthetic was repopularized by George Lucas and by Easy Rider. But it's just really interesting that once MTV becomes this cultural force, it becomes a way of saying the movies are bad now because they're reflecting what's on television. The movies are bad now because they're reflecting what's on television. Bad as in the quality of the films or, or morally? Yeah, there is this argument that I've seen in quite a few reviews, especially of Flashdance, because Flashdance was really savaged by critics in a way that Risky Business generally was not. I watched it for the first time last week. I mean, I love it. <laughs> I think it's great. But the critics of 1983, you know, they kind of lost their minds trying to deal with this film because the way of using MTV as a sort of whipping instrument for Flashdance was a way of saying, you know, well, what about plot? What about character? Um, you know, these things that were considered to be part of the conventions of cinema, critics perceived Flashdance as not having. When it comes to Flashdance and Risky Business, how would you describe their relationship to sex? especially within this larger erotic 80s context? Well, first of all, Flashdance is a movie that Pauline Kael called it softcore porn. There is not a single conventional sex scene in that movie. People really perceived it to be a film that had more sex in it than there is. It doesn't have that much. And I think it's because, you know, it's set basically in a strip club, although even the stripping is completely avant-garde. I mean, it's so influenced by Bob Fosse. Mm -hmm. It has really nothing to do with what you would actually see in a strip club, as the movie acknowledges, because then it goes across the street <laughs> to a much more conventional strip club for one scene. I honestly feel like the sex in Flashdance is tangential to the movie. Risky Business is absolutely a movie about a teenage boy trying to lose his virginity the same way that Porky's is. It's just that Risky Business is taking on the aesthetics of something like Body Heat, you know, or a much closer aesthetic. It's taking on an adult aesthetic to tell that story. The film Risky Business really does feel like a miracle. <laughs> I love the aesthetic of it. You know, it's clearly a star-making performance for both Tom Cruise and Rebecca de Mornay. I think that the filmmaker Paul Brickman was intending it to be more of a satire than it lands as. Mm -hmm. um, I do think he was trying to say something about greed and the corporatization of America and the emphasis that young people were taking, you know, from the pressure to make money and have a career and all of that. The movie's too seductive. And so it's too easy to read it as a commercial for Reaganism, you know, for unfettered capitalism. These filmmakers are making movies we're still talking about in 2022. And yet when we go to reevaluate them, it's hard to balance that seduction or seductive presentation of capitalism with a movie I just want to enjoy. I think that explains some of the rewatchability of these films, because they are kind of, in many cases, a lot of things at once. You know, they're sending messages that feel both progressive and regressive. They can be sort of sexy and repellent at the same time. They can sort of make you feel good about, you know, female liberation and also make you feel icky. And, you know, I think in a lot of cases, they are both critiquing toxic masculinity and celebrating it. By the late 80s, we were seeing director Adrian Lyon kind of take hold of this of this genre. He makes Nine and a Half Weeks in 1986 and Fatal Attraction in 1987. How do you make sense of those pictures now? Well, I think they're really, really different. I, and I like Nine and a Half Weeks much better than I like Fatal Attraction. But Why is that? Well, I think it's a more artful film. Certainly, this thing I was talking about in terms of Flashdance, of him using cinema to make you feel like you're seeing a lot more sex than you are seeing, 
that's the, his most effective example of that is Nine and a Half Weeks. I mean, that's a movie where you have a feeling like there's sex scenes for 40 minutes before there's an actual sex scene. Well, let's take a look at a non-sex scene clip from the 1986 film Nine and a Half Weeks, directed by Adrian Lyne. It's beautiful. I love it. Do you know that they used to be able to hypnotize people with the sound of ticking? <laughs> I hear it. Each day at 12 o'clock, would you look at that watch and think of me touching you? Yes. Would you do that for me? I also think it's a really, really fascinating movie about power in sexual relationships. And it's a movie that I fear would never be made again because of how it refuses to kind of take a stance as to what exactly is happening, whether she's being abused, whether it's a consensual S&M relationship. I find it really compelling in a lot of ways, whereas Fiddle Attraction to me is a little bit more simplistic and is very tied into this male anxiety about women in the workplace, about protecting the home, and all of that sort of Reagan 50s stuff. And your big fear is that the ambiguity of a film like Nine and a Half Weeks couldn't happen in 2022? I mean, in international cinema, sure. But I don't see Hollywood making that film in 2022. Do you think that's because of Hollywood or because of audiences? Well, both. I mean, I just don't think that there's any incentive to sort of test, you know, what audiences will take and what they won't. There's just no financial incentive. I mean, this is why Deep Water gets dumped to Hulu. You know, because there's a chance that the audiences just won't get it. I think that a lot of audiences didn't get it. I'm glad you brought that up because Line, in many ways, represents this great rise and fall of the erotic thriller. He makes these hits in the 80s that we're talking about. And then in the 90s, he makes Indecent Proposal, amongst other things, after he releases Unfaithful in 2002. He doesn't make a film for 20 years. Well, they, they started shooting Deep Water in 2019, but sure. <laughs> it comes out. A month ago, Deep Water. But in those two decades leading up to that film, as you've said, sex has all but disappeared from the movies. Do you think Line kind of represents what went right and then what faded away? I don't know the circumstances of his career and why he hasn't made a movie for all that time. I do remember around 2013, there was a film that was announced that didn't get made. I, I really don't know the specifics of his career. And I still feel like I'm kind of trying to figure out exactly what has sort of changed and what's gone wrong, basically from about the year 2000 to now. I do keep coming back to the fact that, like, when filmmakers do try to engage with adult sexuality, they're not very often rewarded for it. And they might be changing, you know? I mean, certainly, I think The Power of the Dog deals with some powerful ideas about sexuality without necessarily depicting sex. I mean, I don't know to what extent audiences want to actually see sex on screen. And it might just be because there's been now a whole generation that isn't used to seeing it. That's the big question. Do people still want it? The people I talk to, the people in my life who are generally between the ages of about 33 to 55, I feel like they're really excited to talk about these movies that I'm covering in the season and, and to ask these questions. But I don't know about, you know, sort of the public where the only movies they'll go to the movie theater to see are Venom and Spider-Man. In the case of Deep Water, since we have been talking about Adrian Lyne so much, I watched it last week and, and something that struck me 
was that all the things that make an Adrian Lyne movie, not just tonally, but visually, seem to be absent from that film. I think it is lacking some of the Adrian Lyne magic, for sure. The sex that is actually depicted in it is a little lackluster. It certainly lacks, like, the surrealism of some of the best sex scenes of his career. There doesn't seem to be any kind of engagement with pop music or pop culture in the way that marked a lot of his previous films. But I still really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it because of the performances. I enjoyed it because it seemed like it had not much to say, but something to say about the moral rod of war profiteers. And I would still rather watch that than most of the movies that are considered blockbuster hits. I agree. It's a mystifying movie. I I need to watch it again. I have no clue what happens in like 20 (laughs) minutes of it. It seems to be made by part human, part alien. I don't know. I mean, we also have no idea if what we're seeing is the director's cut. You know, I think there are a lot of questions about the making of that movie that have gone unanswered, the making and release. Are you hinting at another season of You Must Remember This? (laughs) It's outside of my temporal purview, unfortunately. (laughs) When asked about the declining relevance of film, you said in an interview in 2020 in Vulture, we'll see how much damage is being done right now. But certainly in the 20th century, America was, for better or worse, the center of the universe. And Hollywood was the engine reflecting and projecting that. Do you think this recurring lament about the end of cinema, which I know you've heard as much as I have, is less about the medium itself surviving and and more about this gradual realization that you make that cinema is no longer at the center of the cultural conversation. Well, cinema isn't. America isn't. (laughs) Men aren't. You know, everything that was of the 20th century, everything has become fractured and changed. And and it's now we're forced to understand that what we as Americans, white Americans, grew up feeling as like this sort of central point of view of life. That is not the central point of view anymore. And I think for the most part, that's a good thing. As somebody who loves movies, you know, it's a difficult adjustment. And, you know, people, especially as I'm sort of talking about this podcast series, people will mention to me like, oh, but what about this sexy movie that was on Netflix or that was on Amazon? And it's most of these movies I've never heard of. You know, maybe that's my problem for not being as up on everything that's released. But it also hasn't filtered to me. Like, for whatever reason, things are so niche right now that those things have not reached my level of consciousness in the way where... The movies that I'm talking about in this season, it would be difficult to escape them. And yet, even as the industry struggles to make the kinds of movies we've been talking about, your show has found an audience. I mean, the podcast, I know, came out of this period for you in 2013 when you left the LA Weekly. When you started the show in 2014, I have no idea if you remember this, but you and I had a phone call Mm -hmm. for an interview. I want to revisit a passage from that piece. You said, you know, writing is really hard. I think it's hard for everybody. But one of my problems with being a writer is that I'm a very emotional person about my work. And I have a more creative temperament than an analytical temperament. So I really agonize over the actual work of it. It's really hard for me to do. And I have to throw myself into it. Does that still feel true to you? Oh, yeah. I don't do anything anymore. I don't do any work anymore except for the podcast. I would never do anything just for the money because it's like, it's not worth it. It's too stressful. 
And even doing the podcast, like every year I go through a thing where it's like, I don't have any ideas. A podcast is over. And then luckily I get an idea, but it is really hard work. And anything that I do would be hard work because I would care about it. I mean, in the years since I you know, had that interview with you, I have taken jobs for hire. And in a lot of cases, I feel like at the end of it, that it was a waste of my time because if it's not something that I walk away having total ownership over, I feel like I've been cheated because I still give 100%. I give as much effort as I would on the podcast, which I have 100% ownership over. And I don't know how to work any other way. I think with the podcast, you know, for better or for worse, I get to do it exactly the way I want to do it. And I don't have to sort of share the accomplishment with anybody else. Whereas in a lot of other projects I've done, somehow, even though the labor is supposed to be divided, I feel like I end up doing, you know, an enormous amount of work. I don't get like full ownership over it. I have to sort of share the proceeds or I get paid, you know, sort of a small amount of money for my labor. And it just doesn't feel worth it. That process when you have no ideas, Mm -hmm. walk me through what that looks like. Are are you sitting there thinking, God, I don't know if I can do another one? Uh, Yeah, sometimes for months. You know, the past two years, it's been different because research libraries have been closed. And so what I used to do is I would go to the Academy's library, the Margaret Herrick Library, and I would just kind of walk around and I'd pull books off the shelf. And, you know, maybe I would do that once a week for a few weeks. And then usually one thing would lead to another and I would get an idea. But I haven't been able to do that in two years. So the two seasons that I did last year, I had to find things that I could do based on books that were available. And so that's where that came from. And then with this season, I knew I could do it because I was already collecting vintage magazines. I, you know, I already collected Ms. Magazine and Movie Line and Confidential. And so I knew that I could, for each of these subjects, like if all else failed, I could just buy a lot of magazines. Mm. That made me even more excited about doing it because it was sort of a new approach. And I mean, these episodes are too long. <laughs> They're all over an hour long because I, like the magazines give me so much material. So, yeah, I don't know what I'll do for the next one. I'm already worried about it. Um, <laughs> but I'll have to just sort of find inspiration somewhere. I think a through line throughout your career, dating back to cinematical, which most people listening have no idea what the hell that is. Yeah, because everybody's 27, right? <laughs> um, actually, no. And I appreciate the love and respect you have for our audience. Um, <laughs> but when I mean, when I was doing cinematical, I was 25. I know that. You were finishing your master's at NYU, mm-hmm. working at a spaghetti factory. I don't think we pasta. made spaghetti. I think we ma- they they had fettuccine and pappardelle, but okay. um, it was called the ravioli store. So I was close. I was close. The through line, as far as I understand it, whether it's through cinematical to spout to the books you've written on on Meryl Streep and Al Pacino and now this show, is that you do invest everything. You do put yourself into all of it. In that same interview from 2020, you said, I hope that my work will help people understand the history of Hollywood and how inextricable it is from American history. Do you think... The work you're doing now, is it all connected to some of your earliest memories as a kid, which included you watching the local news with your mother, seeing Elizabeth Taylor and and, and Rock Hudson and all these people that were still alive in that period, seeing these strange local dispatches? I don't know. In any way, do you see your work connected to that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm definitely talking about some of those things in this season. You know, I'm right now I'm writing an episode for 1985 in which I'm going to talk about the Rockheads and stuff and how Hollywood like had to finally acknowledge AIDS. And I do think that, especially when it gets to the 90s, you know, there were sort of some painful memories in terms of just puberty and like being in junior high and going to see movies like Sliver or getting really into Madonna and, you know, trying to understand how to present myself as like a budding sexual person in a world that was sending a lot of mixed messages. I don't know to what extent I'm going to talk about that in those episodes, but that's definitely something that is part of the reason why I'm still interested in this stuff. As we've said, people keep lamenting the end of cinema. And yet your podcast, which is about the history of cinema, is doing very well. There's clearly an audience for it. Do you see your role as someone trying to keep the medium alive? I see my role as helping people to understand the the richness of the back catalog and the richness of the history. I really can't speak for the the future of making movies, but I can speak to the past. You know, if no other movies are ever made, we have plenty of things to watch. So that's kind of my job. I know when you're asked about the personal legacy you want to leave behind, you often quote the actor Kay Francis. Yeah. So <laughs> Kay Francis is a, a completely forgotten a Warner Brothers starlet from the 1930s. She was basically replaced by Betty Davis and, and wiped from most people's memories. If you've seen any of her movies, you've probably seen Trouble in Paradise, in which she stars as uh, a rich lady who's being conned by Herbert Marshall. And she was a very glamorous brunette who had a little bit of a lisp and looked great in clothes. And, you know, most people consider her to not have been a top flight actress, but she really had her moment for about three years in the 1930s. And she was also a, a stupendous party girl, had a bunch of marriages, had affairs with women, drank a lot of gin, and never really took herself too seriously. And I, I've always really loved her. And she had this quote where, you know, somebody asked her how she wanted to be remembered. And she said, I can't wait to be forgotten. <laughs> well, Kay Francis may be forgotten. I may be <laughs> forgotten. You may be forgotten. <laughs> but the work you're doing is ensuring that art and the history of movies will not be. So I thank you for doing that. I thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Karina Longworth, thank you very much. Thank you. our show. Special thanks to Caitlin James, iHeartMedia, and of course, Karina Longworth. You can hear the first episode of the new season of You Must Remember This wherever you do your podcasting. To learn more about Karina and her work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. Once you're on the site, you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes. If you enjoy today's talk with Karina, I'd recommend our recent conversations with Kate Blanchett, Werner Herzog, Questlove, Laura Dern, Brian De Palma, Steven Soderbergh, 
Julie Delpy, Janixa Bravo, Peter Bogdanovich, Miranda July, Rob Reiner, and Pam Greer. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to send in an email or a voice memo for our upcoming mailbag episode, you can send that to mail at talkeasypod.com. That's mail at talkeasypod.com. We're looking for comments, reflections, any questions you may have for us. We'll be diving into that over the summer. I look forward to your submissions. If you want to support Talk Easy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. You can do so at talkeasypod.com slash shop. If you want to support us in other ways, I say this every week, but again, sharing the show with a friend helps a lot. Reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, just giving us five stars on Spotify. All of this really does help new listeners find Talk Easy. As always, this program would not be possible without our team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Sid. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.